Okay, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. Let's sing the hymn. 865, it's a new month, it's a new hymn. 865 stands as one and four, just the first and the last. You should all know this one. Lord, help us ever to retain the catechism's doctrine plain. As Luther taught the word of truth in simple style to tender youth. Lord, when we fall or go astray, absolve and lift us up, we pray. And through the sacrament increase our faith till we depart in peace. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O Lord, grant that the course of this world may be so peaceably ordered by your governance that your church may joyfully serve you in all godly quietness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's take a look at the verse for the week. Hebrews 9.22, let's speak this together. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. All right. What is the law? Torah. Yeah, the Torah. So that's, that's one of two answers. So there's sort of the general answer. The law is one, the Torah, which is what? Yeah, so we're clear, it's the Pentateuch. The Torah is the Pentateuch, the first five books. Often when we say law, we're not using it the same way because we say law and we typically would say, oh, Ten Commandments. But the full sense of the law which is the Torah, which is the law of Moses, is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But there's another sense here as well, and that is to use C.S. Lewis, it is also the deeper magic, which is to say the laws that are written into the foundations of creation. And that, you'll see in just a minute, why it's twofold. So according to the law, all things, almost all things, are purified with blood. What does it mean to be purified? Made clean. Correct. But... So, like, when you say, I'm going to drink purified water, I'm not going to drink water from the creek that my dog rolls in. 
you're gonna drink water that's good for you, that's clean. But in this context, it's, it, it does mean made clean, but in a religious context, what does it mean that something is made clean, that it is purified? You have to add something to this. Made clean what? Sin. Pardon me? Sin. What about sin? From sin? Uh, <laughs> all, all sin the, the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the priest uh, killed the perfect lamb yes. and, and sacrificed it. Yes. The holy... The, yes. Okay. In order to take away the sin of the yes, Israelites. you're all right, but you're something else, I'm not sure what. this is this is my question. To what end? To, why? To take away the sin of. But why? Why take away the sin? Why does that matter? Why make it so dirty and bloody? Why? What's the whole point? So. <laughs> that's one of those answers that's tr it is correct but it's not right <laughs> yes God said so but why if you, if, if, you, if you just draw the line to well God said so line drawn well then that's <laughs> that's it doesn't work you have to know why why does God God tells you why he says everything that he says yeah You can't be with God. So you're purified, you're made clean before God. Because let's be real for just a minute. Say we in church today killed a lamb just like they did in the temple. You're going to be made clean so let me kill a lamb and sprinkle you with blood in your nice Sunday finery because that makes you clean. Do you see the conundrum there? You're being made dirty, not clean. Because the point of this purification with blood is that you're made clean before God so that when God looks at you on the inside, you're clean. The blood on the outside makes clean what is inside, specifically the heart, so that you can be with God. That is to the end. If you're not clean, you can't be with God, and ultimately what we want is to be with God. That's the joy of paradise is complete, perfect union with God. Okay? Purgation. Oh, yeah, so there is... Yeah, when I said Lutherans believe in purgatory, they just don't know it. Yeah. Be, be, and I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because Lutherans wouldn't say, I believe in purgatory, but they would say, yes, we do affirm a purgation because St. Paul affirms a purgation when everything bad is purged away like, like the raw metal that's put into the, the forge or the crucible and the, the slag is melted away and what's left is the pure, refined metal. You come out better than what you were when you went in. And I might look at a piece of ore and say, that's good ore, 
but even the best ore that I look at and says, that's really good, still has to be refined to be made better than what it was. So this does yeah, tie in with the purgation. The purgation is like the glorified body. So to enter into blessed paradise, receiving that. So you are purified with blood. This is like the most important thing in all of the Old Testament is the blood. Why? What does blood have to do with anything? Why does it have to be blood? Did you have your, yeah? Well, I was going to say it's one of the first acts. Probably in Genesis 3, that is the thing that God does to atone immediately for the sins of Adam. Yes, yeah. So, and if you don't understand what Tyler is talking about, so he says in Genesis 3, the first thing that God does is shed blood. Where in Genesis 3 does God shed blood, you ask? He makes clothes. Yeah, he makes clothes. How do you get animal skins? Pardon me? You don't ask for them. Yeah, you don't ask for them. You take them. And who do you take an animal skin from? The animal. And what do you have to do to the animal to take its skin? You have to kill it. Well, yes, I'm pretty sure God would have done that. I don't think God flays his creatures. So when God gives them skins of animals to cover themselves, they see for the first time what they have wrought, which is shedding of blood. Why do you think Adam, well, so it goes from the fall and then it jumps right to Cain and Abel. How do you think Cain and Abel know that they're supposed to be making sacrifices? Because mommy and daddy taught them. They had good parents that taught them how to be good Christian boys. And how do Adam and Eve know? How did mommy and daddy learn that they were supposed to shed blood and make sacrifice? Because God showed them in the garden as a part of clothing them. So there has to be blood. And that is the first act of God. God tells us that. But what does Leviticus say about blood? The life is in the blood. So you have to shed the blood to be purified. Why? Because sin demands, or the law, the deeper magic, demands your life. The punishment for sin is always death, which is I demand your life from you. You have a debt to be repaid, and the only way you can repay your debt is to give me your life. That's the consequence of sin. So you shed the blood because the life is in the blood. And there's a really, 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 really important connection there with Passover because what is the prohibition in Leviticus about the blood? The life is in the blood. Therefore, you shall not eat the blood. You don't eat the blood because the life is in the blood. Passover, you don't eat the blood. You take it and you put it over the door. And then Jesus is the true Passover lamb. And what does he say about his blood? Eat it! You're not supposed to eat this blood because the life of these creatures is still a sinful life. Don't put another person's sinful life inside of you, but my life is the good life and the perfect life, so put it in you. Now you're allowed to eat the blood of the animal for the same reason, because the life is in the blood. But you have to shed the blood because you have to pay a life. That's the cost of sin. You must pay a life. You must pour out the blood because that's the life. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Why not? Well, how do you pay the debt if you don't pay in the currency? It's a transaction. It's a transaction. You can't... That's why the Lord's Prayer, the language of the Lord's Prayer is forgive our debts. And we say trespasses, which is fine, but there is a, there's a deeper understanding with debts. I've incurred a debt and it must be repaid. So the forgiveness of the debt is a big thing. It's bridging the gap. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission because you're not paying the price, which is life. Blood has to be given. Blood is demanded. That's the deeper law, which is why the blood of Jesus avails much because it fulfills not only the Torah, but it fulfills the deeper laws of creation. Okay, let's speak this again. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Okay, the Christian question. What has Christ done for you that you trust in him? He died for me. But he didn't only die, he did what? He shed his blood. Hey, look at this. The shedding of the blood, paying the cost, fulfilling the transaction. Tetelestai, it is finished. The transaction is done. The debt is paid. The chasm is bridged. The pit is filled in. The life is in the blood. He offers his blood. That's why the shedding of the blood matters. And in the shedding of the blood is the repayment of debt, which brings the forgiveness of sins. That's atonement. That's what he has done. And where does this all happen? Where does it happen? It's right there. On the cross, correct. Why, is, why do we have Jesus on a cross? Why do I wear Jesus on the cross? Why do you look at the paintings and Jesus is on the cross? When I was in college, I had a, there was a, another music student and she said, I think that's really dumb to paint a picture of a dead guy. And I said, if he were dead, it would be. What's the point? Why do, we, why do we show him crucified? Why does your pastor wear him crucified? Why is he on the cross? Yes, because that's the place where you're atoned. That's the place where your sins are taken. That's the place where your sins are killed and crucified and die with Jesus. That's the source of your life and your salvation is Christ on the cross. Christ's crucifixion is eternal. The resurrection is the event that is ongoing after that, but the crucifixion is the thing that is always working. The blood is always outpoured. You're going there to the foot of the cross to get the blood, to put into you, to get the life. And then you live in the resurrection event. But the cross is ongoing. And the shadow of the cross, that's why when you read the Old Testament, the shadow of the cross is all through the Old Testament. Why is the Old Testament so bloody? Because Jesus is bloody. That's why the Old Testament is bloody. Because the Old Testament is the picture of Jesus. Jesus is bloody, so the Old Testament is bloody. 
That's why, that's why you can't understand the Bible if you're not in the church. Okay, kids, you can go downstairs. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to wash your dishes in blood. And you don't wash your hands to eat in blood. So the, the point is, almost all things. So there are some washing customs that don't have to do with blood. So almost all things are purified with blood. The blood doesn't purify the dishes or the couch, but it purifies you, which is the more important thing, so almost all things are purified, but uh, remission is the thing we care about, and that's the thing that can't happen without the shedding of blood. Yeah, remember that Jesus' disciples get in trouble with the Pharisees because they eat with unwashed hands. They don't go and they, they don't wash. So there's, there's different uh, purification rituals. Uh, the wedding of Cana, what are the six water pots of stone for? Pardon me? According to the... This is in the text. According to the manner of purification of the Jews. So there's, there's different kinds of washing. In the, text, in the context that the author to the Hebrews writes, it's a washing of sins. So me washing my hands to eat makes me religiously pure to eat, but it doesn't make me salvifically pure because salvific purity only comes by blood. That's why the priest who wants to offer the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies first has to offer a sacrifice for himself and he has to cleanse himself in blood before he can go in and offer a sacrifice of blood for the rest of the people because if he goes before God, and he is not purified by blood, if he has not paid his debts, God will demand his debts of him when he sees him. Yes? Holy things for holy ones. The holiness radiates outward from the altar. So the holiness starts at the altar. The pastor communes so that he can then be holy to give you the thing that will make you holy. So from the altar to the pastor, from the pastor to the assistants, from the pastor and the assistants to the congregation. It, it radiates outward like that, yes. Holy things for holy ones. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And again, remember this. The Old Testament is bloody because Jesus is bloody, and that's why you can't understand the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, if you're not a part of the church. The Bible is a church book. If you're not in the church, what makes you think you're going to be able to understand it? You don't know how the church talks. You don't know her language. You don't know her vocabulary. You don't know her themes. You don't know her stories. So you read the text and you can read the words, but you come at it with your own external presuppositions. Here's a perfect example. The word love. Now, what do people who love the word love have a problem with when they read the Old Testament. God punishes people. Uh, how? He kills them. What about Jericho? 
you know, all of the, the conquest of Canaan. What about all of that? And they say, what? I read the Old Testament and conclude, God doesn't love, or what else do they conclude about God? He is a? Okay, vengeful. He, is a, he says one thing and does another. He is a hypocrite. He says that he loves, but then he goes and he kills all these people. What's the deal? He loves his people. Yeah, he loves his people. Tyler? Yeah, Marcionism is that heresy. It's a different God. The God of the Old Testament was, he was, he was mean. But the God of the New Testament is good. It's like George Carlin, football versus baseball. Football played in the gridiron. Baseball's played in the park. You know. Uh, but that's like, that's, George Carlin is always what I use for Marcion. Because that's what it is. Old Testament God is Bad, blood, law, killing, ooh. But the New Testament, God is good. Forgiveness and life, Jesus. Like, the New Testament's pretty bloody too, did you forget? And the Old Testament's pretty full of mercy, did you forget? So, you think God's a hypocrite because he says that he loves and then he kills all these people and he sheds all this blood and then he makes you do all of these sacrifices and you don't understand one thing and that is this. This is the example I use. This, is a, this, is a, this was a news story. The father, whose daughter was grabbed inappropriately by the confused man in the woman's bathroom, was arrested for beating that confused man to a pulp. Is that a loving father? Yes. Pardon the language, but hell yes! that is a loving father. But how can you say that? Right, if you love somebody, there are things you cannot permit to happen to them. And there, are, there is a vengeance that you take upon yourself to enact because of the people that you love. It is precisely because God loves that he destroys those who persecute his people who hate him, who blaspheme him, who say we don't want anything to do with you. It is precisely for that reason. I love my people. And therefore, like he says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless my people, but I will curse those who curse my people. Even if it's unwitting, like, <laughs> like Abraham and Sarah in Egypt, and he says, oh, it's just my sister. And Pharaoh says, oh, good, because I thought you were married, but now I know she's fair game. And then Israel gets hit with all kinds of plagues, and he says, hey, what the heck, man? I thought you said she was your sister, but all of these plagues are telling me she's really your wife. Go on and get out of here. And God says, look, see, I keep my promise. He, he didn't even know he was cursing you, but he did, and I defended you. See, that's the way God is. Yes? Oh, yeah, sure, faith, hope, and charity. Uh, charis. What? Charis. You don't need this anymore. So I'm going to move it away. 
And we have some obsessive compulsives here, so I've got to get it all gone. You know who you are, but don't worry, I'm with you. <laughs> the water's fine. Yes, indeed. All right. There, okay. Charis which is a, there's charity. So if you read, I think that the Catechism of the Catholic Church still uses the word charity. And when you read the Church Fathers, if you ever choose to do that, they talk a lot about charity. And that doesn't mean nonprofits. Uh, it means love, but it's a, it's a special kind of love. It's a love that is, um, in, in the charitable sense, it's going to be gracious and extend to aid the needs of others because you care about the others. So love in 1 Corinthians, and I don't know off the top of my head what word Paul actually uses there. Uh, so I'd have to go back and, and look to see if it is charis. Uh, but the point of, of, of that section there is not to say, it's not, it's not married love. So lots of people have that at their weddings, which is fine, but it's not really what Paul is talking about. Yeah. Yeah, so he's talking about the love, that the visible and manifested love of Christ and what, what that love does and endures, and then what you look like when you love and are living in, the, in unity with Christ and living in and by his love for you. So it's, it's really more about salvation and the Christian life than it is about, about the marital union, yeah. But what happened to the word love? I mean, that's a really big question that I can't answer, other than, other than to say that the, the words were stolen and the meanings were changed. Yes. Pardon me? Yeah, agape is a, agape is a self-sacrificial love, the giving of the self. That's the love with which Jesus loves the world in John 3.16 is agape, the love that is so big that I, I love you only for the sake that you exist and I don't put myself into my love at all. I don't love myself. I forsake myself, in fact, because I love you greater than I love myself. Tyler. That is the word there. It is charis? Okay. No, it's agape. In 1 Corinthians? Oh, okay. Yeah, so it is agape. So that actually should be translated as love and not as charity. But, again, with the older language, charity, charity is love, so la language changes. See, Carolyn is a linguist, and, and, and I am a stylist. I'm a grammarian, and we don't get along because I like strunk and white and not ending sentences with prepositions and neat and tidy manuscripts, and Carolyn says, you just... You're, you artificially, you're artificially constraining a language and you're not letting it change and ebb and flow and decay naturally. You just, have to, you just have to let it go. And if there's one thing I'm not good at, it's letting go. <laughs> All right, any other questions here?
Because if not, my goal is to finish both the large and, or the, the longer and the shorter preface to the large catechism so that next week when I'm gone, you can start on the first two commandments. I want to just give a reminder. Catechism is what? Ah. What is catechism? I'm not talking about the Greek. I don't care if you know the Greek or not. I'm talking about what it means. What do we, what do we really, and specifically when Luther or when the, when, the, when the authors of these church works are talking about catechism, what are they talking about? Yeah, okay, the catechism, the... teaching of the faith, but what is that? What is the teaching of the faith? Remember this, the catechetical texts. What are the catechetical texts? Okay, that's one. The Ten Commandments. Yep. The Creed. Specific, specifically, specifically the Apostles' Creed, because that's the baptismal creed, but all the creeds are catechetical, and the Lord's Prayer. That's the catechism. So throughout the church, the catechism, the church has always had catechism, the texts that we use to teach you the faith, which are the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. Yes. The Ethiopian needed somebody to explain the scripture. Yes. He needed catechesis. Yes. Now remember, catecheo is where we get catechism, and that's um, a, a full and direct sounding forth. So when, we, when I use the word catechesis, we use that in English just kind of synonymous with education, but specifically with religious education, that's catechesis. But what it really is, is somebody who is vocally teaching you and rearing up in you an understanding of the Christian faith and doctrine. So this is just, this is the church's catechism. And then Luther, in, in the Luther's small catechism and then the large catechism, what parts does he also include in addition to the historic catechism of the church? There's three, so that's half down because there are now six parts to our catechism. The Office of the Keys. The of the keys. Baptism. Baptism. And the, and the Eucharist, yeah. So the sacraments are what he adds. Okay, so confession and the office of the keys, that's one, and then baptism and, and the Lord's Supper, sacrament of the altar, Eucharist. Okay. It's a word that I have heard before, but it's only recently. It's here, catechetical. Yeah, catechetical. It's in the Baptist, the description, I believe, in the Baptist. Oh, yeah. It, I don't remember, is it? If it is, yeah. then... Oh, yeah, for, for the continuing education. 
Yeah, so in, instead of sermon, it's a catechetical instruction because you would be doing that every day. And you go to the church and you pray, you begin your day with prayer, you end your day with prayer, and then part of that, instead of a sermon or a homily, it would be a catechetical instruction, which is an instruction in the foundations of the Christian faith. And why that is important is because, like I said last week, you never stop learning. You just, you, you continue learning, you just change what level you're learning at. So maybe 20 years ago you were learning down here and now you're up here and the guy 20, old, 20 years older than you is up here and the guy 20 years older than him is up here and the guy on his deathbed is up here. So that your life is this continued progression in catechesis. Life is catechesis. The church is catechesis. The Christian life is growth through catechesis. Which is why the catechisms are important. Which is why the small catechism is in the congregation of prayer every week. Because it's, it's review and continued education for you, but also because the congregation at prayer is, remember what I said last week, house church. It's house church you, which is what both the small and large catechisms were intended to be, teaching tools specifically for dumb pastors, kind of as a crutch, to whip them into shape, but then primarily for fathers in their home, the Hauswasser. So I'm going to pick up here Blah, 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 talking about how bad the pastors are. Blah, blah, blah. They take no other stand in the business than to act as pastors and preachers for their belly's sake. I pretend to be a pastor. If you don't ever see your pastor except for Sunday morning and nobody else in the community sees your pastor except for Sunday morning, there's a problem with your pastor because he's not being a pastor. He's being a guy who shows up on Sunday morning and, you know, the joke for pastors is always, oh, Sunday's the one day a week I work. And that's a joke because you kind of work doctor's hours because you're just always working. As, 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 as long as you have people, you will always have work. So that's the joke that Sunday is the one day of the week that the pastor actually works. But when that joke becomes reality, when you don't see your pastor doing anything, or you never see him, or he's never around, except for Sunday mornings, that is a problem. Because then he's not actually being pastor. He's being lazy, and he's showing up for an easy gig, because he says, oh man, all I have to do is copy a sermon from the internet and go and preach it, boy, that's an, and then I get to rake in a paycheck for that, that's awesome, that's really sweet. And there are a lot of pastors in Luther's day who did that, and there are still pastors that do that today. That that's, in fact, there are guys that often will go to the seminary, and you know, the prayer is always that they get weeded out because the requirements, the academic requirements are somewhat steep. Greek is always the stumbling block. If you can't, if you can't make it through Greek, you're out. You don't get to continue. And you only have a limited number of tries. I think you can take Greek three times, and if you don't pass it on the third time, you don't get to come back ever. You're just done. So that typically will weed out most of these, but every now and then you've got guys that make it all the way through, and they just 
They just think it's an easy gig. Oh man, blah, 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 I hate my job. You know what I could do is I could go to the seminary and then I could just be a pastor because that's really easy work. Guess what? It's not easy work. It's not easy work. It's very difficult work. Okay, which is why, again, St. Paul says, don't let many of you become pastors, okay? It's really hard. It's not for everybody. In fact, it's for only a minute percentage of the population. And uh, the rest of you, just don't worry about it and, and look at your own skill set and be thankful for what you have. Okay, so they now have everything they are to preach and teach placed before them abundantly, clearly, and easily in so many helpful books. These truly are sermons that preach themselves. Uh, that's funny because there, there was an old book called Sermons That Preach Themselves. And I think it was from like the 30s or 40s or maybe earlier. And I don't remember if CPH was the one that published it or not, but there was that book, Sermons That Preach Themselves which was taken from this large catechism where you could just open it up and say, okay, here's a sermon for today. It'll preach itself. I don't have to do it. I can just read it. Because there are not books, series of books of sermons every day of the year. I remember being in our former pastor's studies. Oh, sure. I was looking and they were, I'll put it up June 31st. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there, um, there's a couple answers to that question because I don't know exactly what resource you're referring to. <clears throat> so I'm going to paint with a broad brush. There are books like Sermons That Preach Themselves that are just full of sermons. And those are great. In fact, if you go to my office, I have a bunch of books of collected sermons, and I like to read them. Most often, what you'll find is collected sermons of a particular person like, I've got the collected sermons of Martin Franzman. Or the collected sermons of Norman Nagel. Or the collected sermons of David Scare. Or the collected sermons of so-and-so. Or you go back and I've got the collected sermons of the Church Fathers. Because we're on the same lectionary the Church Fathers were. So if I want to know what Jerome preached for Trinity... Oh, today's not Trinity 5, today's the Feast of the Visitation. If I want to know what Jerome preached for the Feast of the Visitation, all I have to do is go and look up Jerome's sermon for the Feast of the Visitation. So I can do that, and that's great because it helps you to be a better preacher because you're learning while you're reading other people. But then there are other resources like Concordia Pulpit Resources, which is a, a, a resource journal that gets sent out where they have kind of pre-written sermons and then helps for you uh, and little worksheets to help you write sermons for the upcoming liturgical season, which I am not as big a fan of because I think if you, if you say you don't have the time to write a sermon as a pastor, then you need to drop something else out because that's one of your priorities and you should learn how to deal with that and, and learn how to put in the work and the study. And if you don't have the time to do it, make the time. I've thought about phoning it in so many times. You have no idea. This is a very impious thing for me even to admit. There have been many times where the week has been so busy, I just wanted to phone it in. And it comes to Thursday evening, and I still haven't even looked at the texts. And then Friday comes, 
and I'm starting to work on the texts, and of course it's so late in the week, and then you look at the text and you have that moment where you look at it and you say, what am I supposed to do with this? What, what am I supposed to write? What am I supposed to say? And then you do the work, and you sit and you do it, and you write your trash sermon that everybody comes out of church and says, oh, that was a really good sermon, and you go, well, thanks, Lord. <laughs> Because it sure wasn't me, okay? Bill. Pastor Jenkins told me one time, uh, Corning was getting ready for its 100 or 125th, some anniversary celebration. And and he was he had been a pastor, but he'd gone, took the call, but he was coming back to, to preach the sermon. Sure. And he said, he got dried up to the wire, and he had a tech, and it just wouldn't come to him. He said, I don't know what to do. And he said, I walked away from it. And he said, then Saturday afternoon, he came back and he said, there it was. Yep. Said, the, Lord, the Lord was looking after me. The said, Lord always provides yeah. for said, his pastors. He said, I, I worked all week and he said, it just wasn't there. And yeah. he said, all of a sudden, bingo, right at the last minute. Been there. I've written entire sermons throughout the course of the week and then on a Saturday completely thrown them out and started over because I didn't think they were good. Stuff happens. Just before my mother passed away, Pastor Selma asked her if he could preach a prayer. <laughs> she got sermon. <laughs> well, good. Good. All right, so these are good things. Uh, but the preachers are not godly and honest enough to buy these books or even when they do have them, to look at them or read them. Oh, they are completely shameful gluttons and servants of their own bellies. I have lots of books. I have not read them all, but I am working on it. Okay. So they have these books, like, you know, these, these cate catechetical texts, and they don't, even, like, they don't even look at the books. They don't even open it up. They don't even use a sermon that could preach itself. They're just so lazy, they don't behave like pastors. Okay, uh, these pastors are now released from the useless and burdensome babbling of the seven canonical hours of prayer. Now this, I want to bring up, okay? The useless babblings of the canonical hours of prayer. What are the hours of prayer? I do. I mean, like, Matins and Vespers and Compline. Hey, wait a minute. What do we pray here? Matins. And if I, had, if I had my dithers, we'd pray all the offices here. That's a lot. Uh, so what's the deal? I mean, it's in the hymnal, too. What's the deal? What's, are, are they useless to, be, to pray the offices? So that's the first question. Is it useless to pray the offices? No, it is not. It is not useless to keep a disciplined schedule of prayer and the canonical hours actually are kind of good and helpful. At the very least, matins, vespers, and something right before you go to bed, Compline. Now, the, the hymnal also has the services of daily prayer, which is like page 298 or something, and that's just a really short, so early morning, noontime, mid-afternoon, evening before bed. Four, four hours of prayer right there. 
and they don't have to be long or anything. But the problem with the useless babble or burdensome babbling of the hours is that you're gonna go and you're gonna say a lot, but you're not actually gonna spend time in the Psalms. You're not gonna spend time in the scriptures. You're just doing the thing for the thing's sake because it's required of me. Why do I go to church? Well, because I have to. Oh, that's, what are you doing in church? Well, just, you know, we, we, we're focused on saying the words that are in the book. And with thy spirit. You know, but there's no meaning. There's no heart. Or as, as, um, there's a really great book of, of uh, commentary on hy- Christian hymnody, but the book is called Once More with Feeling. <laughs> and I like that because that's kind of, the point is, Let's do this once more, but with feeling this time. It's like when you apologize to your sister and you say, I'm sorry, and your dad says, no, say it again, this time like you mean it. Right? Say amen, but this time like you mean it. Say, O oh Lord, open my lips, but this time like you mean it, not just like you're reading it off the page because it's obligatory. So it's good to, to have a spiritual discipline, but again, if you're going to have that spiritual discipline, maintain it, Make a discipline, create a habit, but have the focus of that be that you're going to spend time in the Psalms, in the Word of God, and in prayer. And that's, that's the point. Uh, Luther says that I wish that they would read each morning, noon, and evening only a page or two in the Catechism, the prayer book, the New Testament, or something else in the Bible. They should pray the Lord's Prayer for themselves and their parishioners. Then they might respond with honor and thanks to the gospel by which they have been delivered from obvious burdens and troubles and might feel a little shame. For like pigs and dogs, they take nothing more from the gospel than this lazy, deadly, shameful, worldly freedom. Remember what St. Paul says. Do we continue in sin to let grace abound? Hell no. And I'm not going to apologize for that language this time because that's what St. Paul says in the Greek of the New Testament. Hell no. May it never be. Absolutely not. Only if hell freezes over is that how we're supposed to behave. Remember the word for this? This is antinomianism. That because we're free from the condemnation of the law, it means that we're free from the law. But being free from the law's condemnation and free from the law are two different things. You don't actually want to be free from the law. Why? Why not? Excuse me. That's proper grammar. Why not? Why don't you want to be free from the law? It's obvious why you want to be free from the law's condemnation. Because if you're under the law's condemnation, then you die. But... What does it mean to be free from the law? Yeah, okay, good, yeah. You, because you have to be tethered. You can't run free. Sure, sure, sure. Can you think of a Sunday school answer? What about the law? The law is... Well, 
Yes, because the law is Jesus. If you're free from the law, then you're free from Jesus. And if you're free from Jesus, are you free? No, you're not. Jesus is the word, and that includes the law. The, word, the law spoken on Mount Sinai is Jesus. So you're, you're not free from him. You're not free from the law. You're bound to him, in fact. But you're now free from the condemnation, which is a great thing. And you're free from the condemnation of the law to live according to the law in grace by Christ, following his way. And that's a joy. Remember, the law is the bare minimum, but the gospel is freedom from the bare minimum. It's freedom to do more. So if I only prayed three times because the law said pray three times, and now I'm free from the condemnation of the law, and the law says you should pray three times, I say, I should pray three times because that's great, but I could also pray five times if I wanted to, or ten times, or twelve, because that's a good Bible number. Because I'm not limited. Okay? So, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to skip a little bit here. There's a lot of condemnation against lazy pastors. Lazy pastors, lazy pastors. Uh, many see the catechism as a poor common teaching which they can read through once and immediately understand. Then they can throw the book into a corner and be ashamed to read it again. Now, what does that sound like? Tyler. Oh, well, yeah, I've pastors I've heard too. Yeah, the Lutheran confessions, I studied them at the seminary and I don't need to do it anymore. But uh, what is it, think about Lutheran practice. What does it sound like if we say, you go through it once and then don't have to come back to it again? Yes! Sounds like confirmation, doesn't it? Graduated. You're graduated. Ooh, that's awful. So here's the deal, right? I heard a parent one time say to their child, walking into the door for midweek, why do we have to do this? I don't want to do this. That's just what we do. Just this is your last year of it, and then you can be done. And how often is that the mentality? One, we're doing it just because that's a pastor has the requirement. You gotta do it. You gotta do what you gotta do. But when you're done, you're done. Then you're off the hook. Once it's behind you, it's behind you. Oh, you sweet summer children. When the door is open, you are eternally going through the door. You never reach the point where you can say, mm, okay, that's enough, and close the door. If it's open, it's open. So, well, you don't just do it once. That's why I say that confirmation is confirming your baptismal faith. And in so many cases, in the majority of cases, when were you baptized? When you were an infant. So now I say, now we have com confirmed the faith that you said you had when you were an infant. That's what confirmation is. <laughs> hey, guess what? You're not a baby anymore. That's confirmation. <laughs> now you're a big boy. Off with the huggies, on with the big boy pants. <laughs> but there's so much more ahead of you. Like the big boy pants, yeah. We'll clap you, clap our hands for you putting on the big boy pants. But there's still 
Look at all that's left ahead of you still, your whole life still. So much to learn and so much more growing and maturing left to do. We don't say, oh, you made it through kindergarten and now you're wearing big boy pants. Good for you. You can draw a picture and tell me two plus two. Well, off into the working world for you. <laughs> you're not ready. You have to mature. You have to grow. You have to learn. So we don't just use it one time. It's a lifelong process. And that's your life as a Christian is growing up, maturing, growing wiser, gaining understanding. Remember what happens to Jesus happens to you. And what does Luke tell us about what happens to Jesus? I'll give you a hint. It begins like this. They went to Jerusalem, and then they left Jerusalem, and they couldn't find Jesus. So they had to go back to Jerusalem, and they found Jesus in the temple, and they were angry with him, and he said, why are you angry with me? Didn't you know? Yeah, I must go about my father's business. And from that point forward, what happens to Jesus? Pardon me? Then he's 30. He put on the big boy pants. <laughs> Not quite. Luke has something in between then and 30. And it's, so, it's like, it's throwaway. Nothing in the Bible is throwaway, but I mean that as in you read it and then you don't remember it because you gloss over it. That's not the passage where he says he grew in stature. And yes, he grew, he increased in wisdom and stature. And that's what happens to you. You come with Jesus, you go to your father's house, and your whole life is you following Jesus and increasing in wisdom and stature. Yes. In the seventh grade, teacher uh, was trying to instill some biblical truths okay. and, and so right after lunch we would have about a 15 or 20 minute something and, and I got into an argument with her which good at well she disregarded the passage that Jesus said I'm about my father's business he didn't she says he didn't know about his earthly ministry until he was 30 years old. And I said, how about that? And she says, well, that, she just blew it off. Mm. And here's <laughs> where I parted company with the idea that, that religious, religion can be in school. I took this to Pastor Poole, and he says, they should teach the fundamentals, the reading, writing, and let us teach the Bible. Yeah. I mean, that's she just... well, but yeah. she was... I just have this horrible sacrilegious... This is sacrilegious, I'm sorry. Okay, I've got this image, you know, Jesus goes to his 30th birthday party, and the Father's there, here's a present for me, Jesus, open it up, open it up. And Jesus opens it, what is this, a crown of thorns? Oh yeah, you just wait, that's your birthday present. Like, like oh, what's this for, Dad? Wait, you mean I've got to, I, do I have to wear this? Oh yes. But first, you get beaten up too. Isn't that great? Wait, I didn't know anything about that, Dad. Hey, come on. Pardon me? 
Yeah, like Heracles. Wait, what? I didn't ask to be born, Dad. <laughs> okay. So, I'm going to jump around here because this, this has to be done today. Guess how many paragraphs we've gotten through today? You know, ranked probably a record. Okay, so he says, as for this, I am also a doctor. Yes, he was a doctor and a preacher. If you ever want to feel bad about yourself, look at the educational progress of people like in the, in the era of the Reformation, in, the, in this sort of medieval era. Philip Melanchthon was a, a doctor of medicine and theology or something ridiculous like that. Two doctorates by the, by the age of 23. You're like, yeah, uh, what have you done with your life? <laughs> you know, I've already gotten two doctorates. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> when Mozart was my age, he'd been dead for three years. And what about you? How many symphonies have you written? <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, so he says, I'm a doctor, and I'm a theologian, I'm a preacher, I'm, I'm as learned and experienced as all the people who have such assumptions and contentment, yet I act as a child who is still being taught there are some congregations that get angry when they walk into their pastor's study and their pastor is sitting in the study reading a book. And they get angry because we're not paying you to read. <laughs> you just synthesize the Bible into your head without having to read it then? I just listen to the audio book. Yeah, faith comes by hearing. I don't need to read. So we don't pay you to read. What is this? Johann Gerhard? You know, I don't, I'm not paying you to read. But you, you are. Because the pastor has to study. Because the pastor is a child. If the pastor doesn't treat himself like a child, then he's not a good pastor. There's a quote from St. Gregory the Great. I, I don't remember if it's in his pastoral rule or not, but he says, the man is not perfect who, through self-imposed busyness, neglects to study the scriptures and the doctrine of the church. And I really want to get that, you know, we've got the, the stenciled lettering. I really want to get that put in the pastor's office right above the door so that every time you look up, you see that reminder. You're not perfect and you're not being a good pastor unless you're in here and you're actually studying and you're learning because you can't take care of God's people if you're not treating yourself like a child and, and living that life to teach it. And that's what Luther says. So I read and say word for word the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer, otherwise known as the Catechism. I do the Catechism and the Psalms and such. I must still read and study them daily. If the only thing that you do is say the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, a Psalm, and, and maybe a reading from the Bible, and you do that a day, then that is sufficient then do it. It doesn't have to be a big flowery thing. Okay, the catechism study, excuse me, catechism study is a most effective help against the devil, the world, and the flesh, and all evil thoughts. 
It helps to be occupied with God's word, to speak it and meditate on it, just as the first psalm declares, people blessed who meditate on God's law day and night. Which brings me to this. What is catechism study, and what do the small and large catechisms help you to do? Ora et labora. Do you know what this is? Have you heard this before? Pray and work. How do you be a good Christian? Ora et labora. Pray and work. Keep yourself busy with prayer and keep yourself busy with work because busy hands don't get into trouble. That's before Luther. Remember, it's better and easier to stay out of trouble than to get out of trouble. So ora et labora. And, and the catechism, the Christian catechism, and then for us, these specific catechisms assist you in that by helping you with repetition and simplicity to get down the faith so that you can think about it, you can learn it, you can continue to grow, and then go about your work. What did he have time to do all this as he was going to confession multiple times a day? Yeah, you make time. That's the other thing. So why don't pastors pray? I'm, I'm speaking generally. Why don't pastors pray? I think you might be surprised if you knew how many pastors don't actually pray and study and read the, even read the scripture regularly. Yeah, because they're too busy. To which I say exactly what Luther says. If you're too busy to do that, you shouldn't be a pastor. Get your act together. You make time to pray. If you're too busy to do that, that's the wrong kind of busy. In fact, Luther says, any time that I was going to pray at the normal time and I heard the thought in my head, don't, you've got to take care of these things, go pray later, he said, then I would pray for twice as long as what I normally would have done to discipline the flesh. Oh yeah? Pray later, you say. I'm so busy, you say. Well, now everything else today is going to wait because I'm going to pray for two hours instead of one hour just to put myself into check. Okay? So, oh, what mad. He has a bunch of things where he makes fun of Germans, which I was kind of excited to read. He says the German people are all awful people because they're too headstrong and they make up their mind and they choose that when they're going to do something, they'll never change. Even when God tells them, they look at God and they say, no thanks, I'm German. <laughs> I don't change, God. Uh, <laughs> so, oh, what mad senseless fools are we? Well, we must ever live and dwell among such mighty enemies as the devils. We still despise our weapons and defense and are too lazy to look at or think of them. If you're not saying at the very least the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer every day, start doing it. Really, start doing it and start coming to Matins. Can we finish learning in one hour 
what God himself cannot finish teaching. Can we finish learning in one hour what God cannot finish teaching? And the answer to that is, no, if God can't finish teaching, you can't finish learning. Okay, so let's close this out. Okay, I beg all Christians, especially pastors and preachers, but all Christians, not to think of themselves as doctors too soon and imagine that they know everything. What did your parents always tell you when you wanted to get your driver's license or you wanted to get a job or you wanted to do this and that? What did they always tell you? Two. Yeah, don't be in a hurry to grow up. That's what Luther says. That's what the church says. Hey, listen. God calls you children. Just own it and be children. Don't, don't try to grow up too quickly. Don't think you know stuff too fast. Just be a child and let it happen. Grow naturally. For imagination, like unshrunk cloth, will fall far short of the measure. Instead, they should daily exercise themselves well in these studies and constantly use them. They should guard with all care and diligence against the poisonous infection of contentment <clears throat> and vain imagination. I would say contentment here is, is really complacency. Think, well, if I prayed two times this week, that's pretty good. Uh, steadily keep on reading, teaching, learning, pondering, and meditating on the catechism. And again, catechism being these things, the old language of that prayer um, that we should read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, not take to heart. That's stupid. Inwardly digest is better because you're ruminating. I've said this before. You're the cow who sits there and you take a bite and then you swallow it down and you say, oh, okay. And then it comes back up. And then you've got to chew on it a little bit more. And that's your life as a Christian, is ruminating on the Word of God. Because you'll never quite get it. It has to keep coming up and keep coming up for you to get it. The longer and the more they study the catechism, the less they know of it, and the more they will find to learn. The longer that you confess the Ten Commandments, the longer that you confess the Creed, the longer that you say the Lord's Prayer, and then, as part of your practice, begin to meditate on such things as the sacraments of the Church, the longer that you, more, that you do that and the more diligently you do that, the more you'll realize that you don't know and the more you'll realize there is for you to grow, which will then urge you to continue doing that. It's a cycle. The, the longer that you do it, the more you don't know and the more you want to do it, which means you do it longer, which means you learn that you know less, and it's just this cycle that continues going. Only then, as hungry and thirsty men, will they truly relish what now they cannot stand because of great abundance and contentment. To this end, may God grant his grace. Amen. Okay. There's the preface. First and second commandments next time. We'll see you in church.